0: If you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn with me to the book of Isaiah chapter 9 for our Old Testament Scripture reading, a passage I think many of us are familiar with as we hear it uh, recited so often uh, during the Christmas season, but here we see that uh, its significance extends well beyond the bounds Uh, of the month of December. Here, within the broader context of uh, Isaiah's message, we find that the curse of sin has fallen upon the whole earth and has cast uh, the world into thick darkness of judgment, gloom, and despair. And yet here we find the good news that the Lord does not leave his people in despair but rather promises to give a king who will bring an end to war, destruction, and death characterized by that of thick darkness. Isaiah chapter 9, we'll read verses 1 to 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations." The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke, the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken, just as you had on the day of Midian. For every boot, of the tramping warrior and battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood, we burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. With the increase of his government of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now, if you turn with me to the book of Matthew, his gospel, as we give our attention to verses 12 through the rest of the chapter, here we see Jesus begin his ministry in Galilee to the north in the old region of Zebulun and Nephtali. And here, Matthew draws our attention to the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy and its significance for us here in the 21st century. Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 12 through the end of the chapter. Now, when Jesus had heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and he lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, upon them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics. And he healed them. Great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. This is God's holy word. Let us go before him and pray that he opens our eyes to understand what it is that Christ has done. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word and ask that um, you would cause us to see Christ in all his fullness and all his glory as he has been revealed to us here in Matthew's gospel. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. I remember when I was in 11th grade in my U.S. history class, it was 1998, and uh, at that time of the year, it was shortly before Christmas, a new movie uh, was set to come out, a movie that at the time I was very much looking forward to, and a movie that I would be greatly, greatly disappointed in. The movie, of course, was the James Cameron film Titanic, uh, and it was an absolute waste of time. I, of course, was excited about it because here's the same guy who had made the Terminator movies and Aliens as a kid, and I thought, hey, great, here's a disaster flick about a boat sinking. What could go wrong? And so I went, one of the only guys, I think, opening night to see it, uh, thinking that one of the greatest modern seafaring disasters of the 20th century would be the spectacle given before my eyes, and it ended up just being a love story, and not a good one at that. I remember Monday, I've probably offended like half the people in here, I think, but Monday morning, uh, I remember sitting in my U.S. history class and sitting next to a, a, a number of, uh, I was seated next to a number of cheerleaders, and, um, and they all started talking about how they wanted to, to see the new movie Titanic, and I thought, oh, here's my chance. Um, and so I turned to them, and I said, I saw it, and, uh, and they turned, eyes open, and they said, oh, really? How was it? I went, well, the boat sank. And... And one of the girls looked at me with tears in her eyes, started crying, and asked why I would ever ruin the ending of the movie for her. Uh, we, let's just say that I never, I never got her number, but I think it does illustrate a real lack of knowledge of our own shared history. I used to teach high school in, in back in Florida, and one of the most common questions I'd get on a regular basis from some of the students I had was, well, why are we learning this? What does this have to do with me? I think it reflects a common difficulty we have in sharing the faith with those around us, right? What does the son of a carpenter and a handful of fishermen living in the Middle East 2,000 years ago have to do with Oregonians in the year 2022, Here's an itinerant Jewish preacher claiming he's the king of Israel. So what, we might think. Here we read of a story of a guy walking along a sea, and he begins calling out to a number of fishermen. And we think, what does this have to do with us? With all the riots and the high gas prices, the political tensions, and the threat of global global conflict, why should I bother waking up early on a Sunday morning to get a history lesson on the religious life of a small fishing village in towns that weren't even considered important in Jesus' own day? What does this have to do with me? Well, I think what Matthew is doing is he's drawing our attention to the fact that this has much to do with us in every way. I think this is, in fact, Matthew's own point. Here, we find that Jesus is the rightful heir to David's throne. He is the Messiah and deliverer of Israel. But Matthew is coming to show to us that Christ has come not only to liberate the nation of Israel, but he has come to bring light to all the nations, to deliver all the peoples from their sin and their misery. Three things this morning uh, we will see Christ has come to bring. First, we'll see in verses 12 to 17, Christ comes bringing good news for the nations. Second is this, we'll see that Christ has come to bring good news for the everyman. You see that here in verses 18 to 22. And finally, Christ comes to bring good news for everyone, verses 23 to 25. Good news for the nations, good news for the everyman, and good news for for everyone. We know where we had last left off, Jesus had been baptized, and it it, it marked that moment of his, his inauguration into public office as or. It's the point in time where Jesus becomes a public man. He is elected by the Father to serve as the representative of the human race, the title there being Son of God. Just as the first Adam had disobeyed God and had thrust the human race into darkness of sin, misery, and death. Now here comes the last Adam, the true and everlasting Son of God, who comes to obey His Father even unto death, that He might reverse the curse of sin and bring light to the world. That He might come and crush Satan under His feet. Here Jesus now emerges from the wilderness temptation and the power of the Spirit and sets in motion this new exodus, as he comes to inaugurate a new creation and usher in the kingdom of God. But as we see here in verse 12, Jesus immediately almost receives word that John the Baptist has been imprisoned. These are dangerous times. You'll see here in verse 17, Jesus comes to preach the exact same message as John the Baptist. Identical. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus does not come to preach a different message than his forebear. And yet because John the Baptist has been in prison, Jesus takes refuge further north. He flees to the region of Galilee. This is the same language that we see here in Matthew chapter 2 when being divinely warned in a dream, uh, the, uh, the, the wise men flee back home to the east to avoid A Herod's fury, and Joseph takes his wife and child, and they flee west to Egypt to avoid the rage of the king. Here, Jesus, on hearing of John's imprisonment, withdraws. He goes to the outer banks, the outskirts of the promised land. Luke's gospel fills in some of the details for us uh, in in, in greater detail. When you read Luke chapter 4, Jesus returns from the wilderness to his hometown in Nazareth, and he begins to preach his first sermon from Isaiah chapter 61, where he says, Look, the Spirit of the Lord has fallen upon me, and he has anointed me and empowered me to deliver good news to the nations. And everybody hearing Jesus' first sermon goes, Oh, isn't that lovely? That's a precious, that's a, that's a nice little message. Everybody, got, everybody begins to whisper, isn't this Joseph's son? They don't really pay attention to Jesus' own sermon. Jesus responds to them and says, it looks like a prophet is not acceptable in his hometown. Do you remember Elijah? Nazareth? Do you remember Elisha? Where were, who were they sent to? I tell you, Elijah, during the famine, was not sent to bring deliverance to any single person in Israel. Yet the Lord sent him to the Gentiles, to a Syrophoenician woman. Remember Elisha? He wasn't sent to heal any of the people of Israel, but he was sent to a Syrian. The greatest prophets of the Old Testament were not sent to Israel. They were actually sent to the Gentiles. And how did the people then respond to Jesus' message? They tried to throw him off of a cliff. It says that Jesus passes through their midst, and he withdraws. He flees now uh, to the region, the town of Capernaum. He is no longer wanted in his own hometown. And so he moves further north to the fishing village, now on the northwest coast of the Galilean Sea. It's a a hill country, but it's it's a country with a sordid history. It's It's an old war zone. You think of Yugoslavia in the 90s. Gives you something of a picture of what we see here. This is uh, an area that exists on a major trade route that keeps getting taken over and taken over and taken over by various people groups throughout their history. It's the old territory of Zebulun and Naphtali in the northern region of Palestine. It's about as far north as you would get before you got outside of Israel's borders. About 800 years prior, the Assyrians had captured it. They had exiled the Jews. They had forced uh, the the Jews living in that region to intermarry, to worship uh, and begin uh, uh, practicing these pagan religions and worshiping these false gods. And and the Assyrians actually renamed uh, this hill country, the hill country or the Har uh, of Megiddo, Har Megiddo. And the region of this area of Har Megiddo were considered half-breeds. They were morally repugnant. They were considered uh, by the Jews in Jerusalem to be idolaters, religiously compromised, a bunch of half-breeds. It was a mix of both Jew and Gentiles and an interbreeding of both Jew and Gentile. You know, today we we speak of the deep darkness that has consumed the the post-Christian West Well, I think the Jews in the first century would have spoken of Galilee in similar terms. This was, uh, from their perspective, a, a paganized promised land. Morally dark, irredeemable, too far gone. And yet here we see that the Lord's arm is not so short that he cannot reach and that he cannot save. It seems like an innocuous event that Matthew is recording. This is not something that would have made the front page of the Jerusalem Times that, you know, the carpenter's son from Branchville, remember Nazareth means the branch, branch town, he moves to this podunk fishing village. Nobody would ever have batted an eye at this moment in history. It appears to be unremarkable, and yet it, in fact, hearkens and signals the arrival of the end of the age here is yet another sign that David's heir is on the move. According to Isaiah chapter 9, here is the morally dark hill country of Naphtali and Zebulun. And yet here in this dark region, light would in fact shine and dawn upon them. According to Zechariah chapter 12, the Messiah uh, we are told would come and wage war against Satan and his forces and reunite a divided kingdom on the plains of Megiddo. The And here, that's exactly what Christ comes to do. And yet, the battle takes place in a way that we would not expect. Here, Zebulun and Naphtali may have been the first to have been carried away in the exile eight centuries prior, but here, this is where the first crack of dawn begins to break. And Jesus comes to draw in the lost like fish in a net. Not even the darkest of regions can escape the dawn's early light. Though John the Baptist had been in prison, Jesus comes to preach the exact same message that the heavenly kingdom is at hand and it will outlast and outstrip the kingdoms of men. Jesus begins his work of gathering in the dispersed, the outcasts, those who are considered morally repugnant, those who have been considered compromised, those who have been considered too far gone and beyond reach and beyond help. Here, David's son begins to reconstitute the twelve tribes around himself. I think that is the significance of Jesus calling twelve men Israel's king. It's a symbolic act. Here, Jesus is restoring the kingdom, and we read here of this work of restoration, it begins not in Jerusalem. It begins in the Outer Banks. makes about as much sense as hearing somebody coming to reform uh, the U.S. government, and yet the the great reformer does not go to D.C., but he goes to Fairbanks, Alaska. Here, Israel's great king begins his movement in the north. And he doesn't call noble princes as his chief ambassadors. He doesn't call the academy-trained theologues Rather, he calls a handful of fishermen and he does so for a purpose. He begins to assemble the first four of his twelve ambassadors. You see that here in verses 18 to 22. Once again, on the surface, the events seem unremarkable. Here's an itinerant preacher without a home. And he calls two sets of brothers to leave their fishing business and become his pupils. But I think there are several features that hint that this is no ordinary day. I think the first is this, that Matthew draws significant parallels between this story and Jesus' own temptation in the wilderness. Here, Matthew repeats several key words that we saw in last week's uh, passage. You remember when when Satan tempted Jesus and told himself uh, to, to cast himself from the top of the Temple Mount? That if he would do so, Jesus would draw in the nations through this grand spectacle. Jesus turns and commands Satan to leave. Well, now Jesus comes not to Jerusalem to cast himself from the temple, but now he goes further north and he tells Simon and Andrew that they will cast their nets and draw in men. I think Matthew's giving us a subtle hint that the Messiah comes to inaugurate the kingdom not through the grand spectacle that Satan had uh, designed and, and, and tempted Christ with, but Jesus comes to inaugurate the kingdom through What appears to be a common fishing expedition. Again, Luke chapter 5 elaborates the story in greater detail. Jesus actually gives directions on how uh, uh, Peter and and, uh, James and John and Simon can can catch more fish. Hey, cast your nets to the other side. And Jesus says, "You you think that's something. I've come to make you fishers of men. Of course, I think many of us growing up in Sunday school would hear that story. You'd have the flannel graph of Jesus calling to make us fishers of men. We ask ourselves, what does that mean? And I think so many of us think, well, that's just a nice word picture. And it is a nice word picture. Jesus comes to fishermen and uses language that they understand. But I think we should also stop and ask ourselves, why fishermen? Again, if we were to turn back to the Old Testament, the prophet Jeremiah, the, the weeping prophet, Jeremiah himself was sent to proclaim that judgment was coming, the day of the Lord was at hand, and that Israel would be sent into exile for her own sin, that the kingdom would be dismantled, it would be reduced to a stump, and its inhabitants scattered abroad. But Jeremiah the weeping prophet also gives a word of comfort and hope that the Lord will not leave his people in the lurch, he will not leave them in that deep darkness, Jeremiah chapter 16, this is what the Lord says through Jeremiah. He says, because you, O Israel, have forsaken me, therefore I will hurl you out of this land, it's the picture of exile, and into a land that neither you nor your fathers have known. But then the Lord makes this curious follow-up statement. Jeremiah chapter 16, verse 14, he says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when it shall no longer be said as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord who brought up the people of Israel out of the north country. So for starters, Jeremiah is anticipating a day when the people of the north country will be brought back in uh, in something that resembles the Exodus. But how will this happen? And this is where I think this is significant for understanding Jesus' own words to these fishermen Jeremiah chapter 16, verse 16, the Lord says, This is how I will bring them in. Behold, I am sending for many fishers, and they shall catch them and shall draw them in. Here Jesus comes to the north country. Here he comes to the plains of Megiddo. Here he comes to Harmageddon to liberate the people in accordance with the prophecy of Zechariah, to bring light to the Gentiles in accordance with the word of Isaiah and to draw on the lost by sending fishers of men in accordance with the prophet Jeremiah. What seems like an ordinary day is the fulfillment of so much of the prophetic word given to us in the Old Testament, and it signals that a greater exodus is coming, not through the grand spectacle of split waters or from a Messiah on a suicide mission to jump off the top of a cliff, But here, this great exodus, this return from exile comes through a common fishing expedition by drawing in the lost through simple gospel preaching. You'll see this later on in Matthew's gospel where Jesus compares the preaching of the gospel to the casting of nets and drawing in of many fish. Here, the proclamation of glad tidings The good news that the king has come is the means by which the king comes to draw in the scattered house of Israel and reconstitute the broken and fractured kingdom. Yet there's a third feature we see here. That the one who does this is one who is greater than the prophets of old, one who is greater than Elijah and Elisha. You see that here in verses 18 to 20 when Jesus calls James and John. It's done in a manner that's identical to when Elijah called Elisha as his successor and prophet. Remember what happens? Elijah throws the mantle upon Elisha and Elisha says, let me go uh, and say goodbye to my father and mother. Elijah permits him and Elisha leaves Father and mother, and follows Elijah and walks in his footsteps. You know, in the ancient world, typically if somebody were a teacher, it would be the student who sought out the teacher. Much like today, if you're going to get a a PhD somewhere, you go to seek out the person you want to study under and get your your doctorate. What's fascinating here though, it's not that the here's not a, a matter of student seeking out the teacher. Here's a matter of the teacher seeking out the student, saying, I've called you. Today's the day to drop your nets and to follow me. Here, one greater than Elijah has come, and he comes to call these disciples to himself. And once they are called, Jesus now begins his work in Galilee. You see that here in verses 23 to 25. Here, Matthew gives us a bird's-eye view of Jesus' own ministry. He'll tease out the greater specifics as we make our way through the gospel, but verses 23 to 25 gives us in kind of a short, concise, kind of cliff notes form what Jesus will do as he goes from town to town. And he summarizes Jesus's ministry in three ways, through that of teaching and instruction, through that of proclamation and preaching, and through that of healing Note that Jesus preaches the exact same message as John the Baptist. It's no different. You see that here in verse 17 repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's the very same message that John the Baptist had come to preach, we saw in the previous chapter. And when we make it to the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 to 7, we're going to give it, uh, be given a kind of a peek behind the window on what the content of this gospel preaching of the arrival of the kingdom looks like. We'll probably spend the rest of the year in that sermon. There's a lot there that Jesus preaches. What I think though, is significant here is this, that there is a feature of Jesus' ministry that was not seen in John the Baptist's ministry. They preached the same message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, but now attending Jesus' message are signs, pointers, that confirm The authenticity of Christ's message. Here Jesus comes and not only teaches, not only preaches, but he also heals. John the Baptist is never said to heal, but Jesus heals. Jesus comes and he heals both the chronic diseases and the occasional sicknesses. We're told of people who have uh, diseases they've had their entire lives. We're told of Jesus who comes also to heal uh, Peter's mother-in-law who had a fever. There's no sickness too great. There's no sickness too small that extends beyond the scope of Jesus' own healing power. Jesus comes and He heals natural, what we might call natural diseases, but also supernatural diseases of demonic possession. And in the ancient world, epilepsy was seen to be a supernatural type of sickness. Jesus comes and heals even that. There is nothing that extends outside the scope of Christ's own power as the Spirit-anointed Messiah, the Son of David, who will come and bring healing to the nations. No people are beyond his grasp. Here, Jesus comes to a region that is intermixed not only of Jews, but Gentiles and every, everyone in between. And whoever comes to Christ, he heals them. And yet, these outer healings signify the deeper healing that he has come to bring as he comes to get at the very root of sickness, the very cause of death, as Jesus comes to reckon with the sin that has infected and plagued every human heart. In other words, Jesus comes to heal in both body and soul a healing that will ultimately culminate in His triumph over death itself, and the reversal of death that is found at the resurrection of the dead, a resurrection that will take place on the day of our Savior's great return, the day in which the kingdom is finally consummated. The work of Christ has begun The religious elite in Jerusalem, as we had read in Matthew chapter 2, heard that Christ had come, and yet they they yawned at his appearing. They didn't even go to the the cattle stall uh, to see baby Jesus. But here we find outcasts in the morally degenerate flock from the north to be delivered from the moral darkness of sin. And now Jesus' fame begins to spread beyond the boundaries of Israel. And he preaches and he teaches to those outside of Israel as well as those inside of Israel. He comes and proclaims the message that God's kingdom has come and it will shine upon all the earth. So as we take a step back and we consider this particular passage, we ask why should we care? What does this have to do with us? Why should I spend time uh, looking at a passage of of an itinerant preacher 2,000 years ago who who goes on a fishing expedition, who begins his itinerant preaching ministry? I think here we are told that, yes, Jesus is a Jewish Messiah, but he reigns over all. These seemingly mundane events The work of a carpenter's son and four fishermen, why should we care? Yet cast against the backdrop of the Old Testament, we see that the end of the ages has dawned. Here in the most unlikely of battles, the Messiah has come to Armageddon to continue his offensive front against Satan for the life of the people. But it does not come in a way that we'd expect. It's a battle greater than D-Day. And yet there's not a soldier on the battlefield. There's not a sword or spear in sight. Here we see that the great conqueror has come to bring light to the nations, and yet it does not come through the academic ivory towers in Jerusalem, but it comes to fishermen in the northern boondocks. The kingdom is inaugurated, the people are assembled, and it comes not through the shouts of war or revolution, but it comes through the simple preaching of the gospel of repentance and faith. As we ask ourselves, what does this have to do with us? I think there are three takeaways. The first is this, that we find that Jesus is not some territorial warlord coming to claim a strip of land in Palestine. Neither is Jesus a failed revolutionary, but here comes the king of the cosmos, the king of the universe coming to inherit what is rightfully his His kingdom extends beyond the borders of Palestine. Nothing can stop the message of the kingdom as it goes out and extends to people from every tongue, tribe, race, and nation. A message that comes to all people, even to the outcast and the most morally repugnant. Christ comes and brings healing even to them. It is good news for all nations. Secondly, Jesus' kingdom does not come through pomp or power. It does not come through ostentation or the bearing of arms. Jesus does not assemble a revolutionary squad to take up arms against Herod or Pilate. This kingdom is not established through earthly means. It is not established by violence, by protest, by revolution. It does not come through glitz or glamour. It does not come by the ostentatious display of power, but rather it comes through different means. The displays of pomp and power and show and the glitz is the means that Satan tried to tempt Christ to inaugurate the kingdom. And Jesus said, No, rather, the kingdom comes through more humble means, through the simple preaching and proclamation of a religion that is not just for the aristocrat, not just for the nobleman, but it is for the everyman. As J.C. Ryle writes, Christianity is a practical, religion. It comes for the blue collar, it comes for the white collar, it comes for the farmer and the fisherman, and it comes for the kings and the nobles. This is good news for the everyman. final feature is that it is good news for everyone. It's glad tidings. Matthew uses this language of new creation and new exodus, a return from exile, to depict for us Christ's work of redemption. Jesus has come to reverse the curse of sin that has befallen the human race. Jesus has come to deliver us from our sin and our misery. Jesus has come to triumph even over death. And as he inaugurates the kingdom, he pays the price of sin. So that on the day of his return, when that kingdom is consummated, he will defeat the wages, he will, uh, defeat the wages of sin and swallow up death and bring about resurrection from the dead for all who trust in him. See this is good news to all men. This is why it's significant for us today. That here Jesus son of the virgin raised in the family of a carpenter close friends is, having fishermen as close friends comes to preach but that message that was relevant To the small fishing towns along the Sea of Galilee is the same message that's given today that is not only relevant, but according to Paul, is the very power of God that leads to salvation for both Jew and Gentile alike. Good news has come to all men, that in the land of the shadow of death, light has dawned. Let us pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this word and ask... Uh, that you would open up our eyes to see the power of the gospel uh, and its relevance for our own lives. We ask these things in Christ's name.